Dripping Down Science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist. That's with Dave Ansell. Hi there. And Ben Valsler. Hello. And with me, Chris Smith. Now, it makes a change because we're actually all in the same place this week rather than being in separate hemispheres and separate cities. But coming up this week, how scientists have found a way to see the lung damage that's done by passive smoking, and it really is real. Also, why a moon like ours is quite rare as planets go and why this might affect our prospects of finding advanced life elsewhere in the universe. And also how scientists have solved the mystery of how to sniff out your ideal mate. It's all down to smelly chemicals in your urine, would you believe? And at least that is if you're a mouse. And that's all on the way. Ben. Also this week, we're bringing you an insight into life and science in South Africa, where Chris and I spent this week visiting Johannesburg. We'll be retracing the evolution of humankind, thanks to spending a morning amongst the remains of our ancestors. Some of these are three million years old. Plus, we find out what life's like in a shanty town and the frightening situation of HIV in South Africa, where 50% of the population are destined to become infected with the disease. But it's not all bad news, because for this week's Kitchen Science, we'll be hearing how you can throw your voice over 50 metres just by standing in front of a large metal dish. So, David, can you hear me over there? I can hear you perfectly well, Ben. <laughs> and in this week's Question of the Week, we'll be finding out why sunglasses can make you see things which aren't really there. Hi, I'm Lauren calling from Australia and I wanted to ask, how come when you wear polarised lenses can you see strange patterns of light in windows and shiny rainbows in metal? And the same science also explains why Polaroid glasses will make the LCD face of your digital watch disappear. Don't believe me? Give it a try. You can find out the answer shortly. So if you'd like to ask us any science questions, technology, medicine, science, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at what's been hot in the world of science and research this week. And this one caught my eye because... For a long time, people have said that there's no evidence that passive smoking is actually bad for you. Well, there's a bit of statistical evidence, but no one's ever managed to do a test which proves beyond doubt that the lungs of people exposed to smoke passively are actually being harmed. Well, that's now changed because Cheng Bo Wang and his colleagues, they're based at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, have used a brand new imaging technique which involves MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, to see inside the lungs of people who are non-smokers and people who are passive smokers and people who are smokers, and they've demonstrated there are changes. Now, what you do is you ask the subjects, and they took 60 people, 45 of whom were the non-smokers, half of whom had been exposed to smoke, half of whom had been exposed only to small amounts of smoke, and they asked them to breathe in small amounts of helium-3. And the way the test works is that the MRI scanner can see this funny form of helium, helium-3, and it can measure how fast, over about one and a half seconds, the helium atoms move around inside the lung. Now, if you're a smoker and there's been damage to the lung, which progressive smoking over years does do, then the distance that the helium atoms can move around is greater because the lung tissue has broken down a bit so the air spaces where obviously the lungs would pick up oxygen from the atmosphere when you breathe it in and get rid of carbon dioxide those spaces are a bit are a bit bigger so the helium atoms can move further on average compared with people who have healthy lungs and when the, the researchers did this they found that a third of the non-smokers who had long-term, quite serious exposure to passive smoking had many of the same structural changes that they saw in the long-term smokers. So this suggests that there is a lot of evidence now that if you are exposed to passive smoke, you can get a lot of the same lung damage that smokers do. 
Wow. Does having these bigger volume, bigger sort of volumes in the lungs mean there's less surface area so you can absorb oxygen less well? That's right. And over time, people develop changes which are called emphysematous changes. And this, if you get enough of them, leads to the chest condition emphysema, which is where instead of having lots of small air passageways, where you have a large amount of surface, lots of lung tissue in contact with a tiny amount of air with lots of blood going around the surface, so there's lots of opportunity for gas to go out of the air spaces and into the blood and vice versa. If you start making those spaces join together because the lung tissue gets broken down. You get one big space, but it's only got a tiny amount of air sp- of, of tissue around it. So the opportunity to gas exchange is reduced. So you can't your lungs don't work as efficiently. Very interesting. Now, moons like ours could be actually really quite rare, some researchers have been finding. Now, our moon is thought to have been created by a planet the size of Mars hitting the sort of proto-Earth before this had happened. The resulting debris was thrown out and slowly coalesced to form the moon. I think possibly something similar may have happened for Pluto's moon, Charon, which is very close to it. Now, Nadia Nadia Grolova from the University of Florida has been looking for evidence of this sort of collision in other solar systems. Um, Our technology isn't good enough to actually detect the planets themselves. So what they've been looking at is the dust from these collisions. So if two things hit each other, it's going to throw out lots and lots of stuff. It's going to be dust. It's going to be hot. So they've been looking for this hot gas. They've been looking at a load of solar systems just forming only about 30 million years old. It's the time that most of these collisions should be happening. From their results, they think that only maybe 1 in 10 or 20 solar systems could have had a collision anything like ours, and only some of those collisions would actually produce something like the Moon. So that's a bit of a worry, isn't it? Because the, I mean, the Moon's important for life on Earth, we think, for various reasons. It's, it's very stabilising, isn't it? Yeah, but it seems to... They think it stabilises the orientation of the axis of the Earth. So this orientation has been roughly pointing in the same direction for the last 4 or 5 billion years, which means that you get the same seasons all the time, everything's very stable... Without it, the kind of um, axis would slowly wander over billions of years, and probably that would stop very um, advanced life forming. It wouldn't stop simple life, but it would stop advanced life like us. Is that because the conditions on Earth would change faster than the animals could adapt or the life could adapt, and, and that would mean that things were continuously becoming extinct before they could really develop very fast? Yeah, that's the idea. That there isn't enough time, nice and stable, to develop complex life, because actually, once you've got multicellular life, it's quite easy to evolve more complicated. The difficult bit is getting from one cell to multicellular and they don't think it being stable for long enough. So how does the moon have that stabilising influence? What is, what's the physics there? Um, I think some of it's because the Earth is kind of, it's not quite a perfect sphere, it's kind of splurged out sideways. It's fat around the middle, like, around the like middle. humans. <laughs> Just, many, yeah. many humans. <laughs> many humans. Um, and so that means that the bit closest to the moon will tend to get attracted to the moon, so it will kind of... Um, stabilise it a bit. Um, so if the Earth tried to tip away from the axis of the Moon, it will get pulled back again over thousands of millions of years. That's good to know. So the impact of this is that we've got the Moon to thank for advanced life on Earth and that there aren't that many Moon systems like ours. So therefore that narrows down the opportunity of finding life like we've got here elsewhere. Yeah, it does mean that we could be very, really quite special on this planet of Earth. Well, we know we're special, though, but... Um, but I'm just thinking there are something like 22, was it seven heptillion? There's something like seven heptillion stars in the universe, isn't there? NASA's latest estimate, that's 22 zeros after the number seven. So there's still a, a lot of opportunities for, for other systems like ours to I mean, Yeah, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't find life or wouldn't find intelligent life. It's just we're less likely to find it on our doorstep, I think. <laughs> I don't know, I've been looking for life in Cambridge lately. <laughs> um 
Well, talking about interesting sources of life, um, how do you find the ideal mate? Well, for a long time, people have claimed it's all down to what we smell like and that smell can give you a clue as to the genes that control your immune system. And the theory is that we're all looking for someone who's got an immune system as different as possible to our own and they're the best person to mate with because then you'll have a baby with a more super-duper immune system. Whereas if you marry people who've got an immune system very similar to your own, you can't respond to as many new pathogens. That's been the dogma for a long time. Uh, so a group of researchers led by Janet Hurst, and she's at U Liverpool University, decided to test it. And they used wild mice. So they released wild mice into this big outside enclosure, let them reproduce for 15 weeks. And then they collected all of the offspring and, and tested their parentage. They did genetic tests to see who was mating with who from their original founding mouse colony. And the results were really interesting because there was absolutely no relationship to what their immune system genes were doing. So this dogma we've been looking at for donkey's years, saying people are going for people with different immune systems, and mice marry mice, if you can marry a mouse, with different immune systems. Not true. In fact, it's all down to how their urine smells. And there's a family of proteins called major urinary proteins, MUPs, MUPs, which make urine smell a certain way. And they give a mouse a sort of chemical barcode. And the mouse smells its urine, smells the mouse it quite likes the look of's urine, and if the two are wildly disparate, it knows that mouse must be genetically not related to it because the genes that control these proteins are obviously in the mouse's DNA. So if it's got different genes, it must be from different parents, and therefore it's a good opportunity. Let's mate with that mouse. It's genetically different from me, and we'll have more healthy offspring. So rather than being just a mechanism to make sure that one particular gene is as diverse as possible, it's purely to avoid inbreeding? Yeah, it is. And if you put two mice together and their brother and sister in a tank and, you, and they've got no opportunity to, to mate apart from with each other, they will. So if you put pressure on them, they will, they will mate with each other. They'll be incestuous. But then if you introduce a third mouse, which is not related to the brother and sister mouse, the, f the pregnant female can automatically abort her pregnancy and she'll mate with the new mouse. So she can definitely tell that, that there's a there's a genetic relatedness going on or a non-relatedness. It's just the question was how they were doing it. So this sort of smelly T-shirt test in humans and all being down to um, immune genes, it's not true. And it's actually down to, in mice at least, it's the smell of urine. We still have to work out exactly how it's done in humans, but the, the same relationship seems to exist in humans too. And the reason the researchers point out, and this is an important point, the reason it's been overlooked for so long is everyone's been studying lab, lab mice, and lab mice are all inbred, so they're genetically identical so that they respond to lab tests in the same way so, that, so it's got to make sure they're all good controls um, and if you want to see this effect you're not going to see it in lab mice which are all genetically identical so you had to go to the wild mice and then you found the effect cool uh, now we've been some researchers have been looking at opals and they think they're actually being not full. the sweets no the not fruits. the sweets no 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 <laughs> The, the the beautiful gemstones which have this really fascinating effect where we look at them you get all sorts of strange colors and as you move them they change color now opals are um the way they do this they're actually making the colors in a similar way to get colors off a cd so what's actually in an opal then dave an opal is made out of silica it's lots of minute spheres of silica and that these spheres are smaller than the wavelength of light. So in a similar way to the pits on a CD, reflecting lots of light in different ways, lots of different reflections, you get lots of different reflections of all these spheres. And the different reflections then interfere with each other and give different colours oh, and I different see. directions. So the light coming off, some of the lights are out of step with another bit of light, and they, and they will either add together or destroy each other, giving you specific yeah. colours. And different colours will either add together or mm. destroy each other in different directions, so you get different colours and it will change as you look at it from different directions. 
Um, now, scientists have known that this is a structure of opal for quite a long time, since the 70s, and people have actually made artificial opals with similar effects. But they've not really known what triggers the formation of opals in rocks, because there's lots and lots of places where you could form an opal, but only some of them seem to do that. Now, what... Um, the geologist Brian Senior and the physicist Lewis Chatterton have been studying these opals very carefully with electron microscopes, amongst other things. Discover in the centre of these spheres there tends to be some uranium. And what they think happens is the uranium decays, it's a radioactive um, element, it decays and forms some, something else, possibly thorium. And when it does that, it releases a whole lot of energy. This kind of um, bashes the, this alpha particle comes out, it bashes the water around, it forms a, sp- a nucleation place, a place where it can start forming a crystal of silica. And then, as, and then each of these spheres starts growing on a place where a uranium atom has decayed. So you get all these spheres building up, and then you get an opal after a, after a while as so it builds up. So does this mean, then, you can go opal hunting with a Geiger counter, effectively? That's what they're suggesting, that the way to find opals is to um, wander around with a Geiger counter, work out where the most radiation is coming from, dig there, and with any luck you'll find the opals. That's very interesting. I wonder if that explains, then, why Australia, for example, which is renowned for its opals, has also got some of the world's biggest uranium deposits. Do you think the two are linked? It's possible they're linked. I'd have to actually look at where the two were with respect to one another to know for sure, but could well be, Chris. Thanks, Dave. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Ben, and this week we're looking at some of the exciting science that we uncovered while we were in South Africa, where Ben and I were this week. So we'll be bringing you details of what life's like in a shanty town. that's coming up shortly, about the very terrifying situation of HIV and AIDS. One person in two in their lifetime in South Africa now will be affected and infected with HIV unless things change fairly radically. And also we'll be coming face-to-face with where we came from, because we saw this week some of the oldest fossils fossilised homo, our ancestors, that are known to exist. 30% of those specimens are in South Africa at the University of Wittwaltersrand in Johannesburg and we were lucky enough to touch them and we'll be bringing you all that on the way. If you'd like to ask us any questions about science, technology and medicine here on The Naked Scientist, email us chris at thenakedscientist.com. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientist.com. Dave, got an email here from Neil Haddon who says, why is helium in balloons and not hydrogen? Well, he's right. You don't just get a floating balloon, you want a gas which is as light as possible. Um, helium is quite a lot lighter than air. air. Air weight is about an eighth of the density of air. Hydrogen is about a sixteenth of the density of air. So it'll float in air and so the balloon will float upwards. Um, you'd have thought that hydrogen would be a better gas as it will give you slightly more lift than the helium. Um, because it's lighter. This is true. The problem is hydrogen is explosive, and if you had children running around with balloons which could (laughs) catch fire and blow up in their faces, this may have some health and safety implications. The other thing is that although hydrogen is half as heavy as helium, um, it doesn't actually give you twice as much lift because the amount of lift you get is a difference in its density with air. And so it's actually kind of only another, it's kind of a six, maybe another 16th of the density of air weight. It's a little bit better, but not very much. So it's not worth the danger. And, but helium's quite expensive, isn't it? Because it's a, a limited resource here on Earth. Yeah, because helium is only created by radioactive decay on Earth. Um, you get alpha things called alpha particles, which are actually helium nucleuses. They slow down and then they gain some electrons and they turn into um, a helium atom. So do we mine helium then? Do we have to sort of find pockets of it underground? It, it, it tends to be found in oil wells where you get a... What's a gas-proof um, layer of rock above a load of... Um, sort of rocks containing radioactive elements they 
break down, produce a helium, it floats up, gets trapped. It's often at the top of an oil well, and mostly in American oil wells. So the amount of helium that we can access cheaply like this is very, very limited because not all oil wells have it. Quick question, Dave. Would that mean, in the same way as if people were to do what I was doing last night for a gag at a party, which was to get someone's birthday balloon and inhale the contents and sound funny, can you do that with hydrogen then? If you were not frightened of the potentially explosive consequences. It would actually work even better with hydrogen, but I wouldn't recommend it at all to anybody. <laughs> because you're not going to smoke, are you? <laughs> you? It's just messy. I don't want to even think about it, Chris. It's a good way to cook yourself from the inside out. Ben? It certainly puts it into perspective that you would, in fact, be doing a party trick with an unsustainable resource <laughs> that you can only mine from deep underground. But we have a question for you here, Chris. This is from Yun Feng, who uh, is listening in Sweden, and he says that he recently read that the body consists of ten times more bacteria than human cells in number, and that the explanation was that the, our cells are much larger than the bacteria. But is this true? And he wants to know where else in the body, other than the digestive system, do you actually get these bacteria? Uh, it is true. Um, we are passengers in our own body. And in fact, 10 is a conservative estimate. There are in fact 50 times more bacterial cells living in you and on you than there are cells in the rest of your body that are you. And there are two major spin-offs of this. Most of them in, are in the gut, of course. That's the, the intestines. And we have them there because we have the perfect place for them to live. There's lots of things for them to eat. There's lots of gases which they don't, which they which they can mis, uh, metabolize. So, in the fact, the inter, insides of us are fairly devoid of oxygen, for example. And lots of these bugs are anaerobes; they don't like oxygen, so it's a good place for them to live. They do us a lot of favors, and by having them there, they're taking up resources and space which potentially nasty bacteria could take up. So, by having lots of these bugs in us, they're, they're in fact protecting us from being infected. And when you go abroad and get diarrhea or something, what's actually happening is that the local bugs are combating your friendly bugs and beating them off for a while and then your body learns to react and pushes the nasty ones back out and then the friendly ones recolonize. Uh, they are very small. Bacteria probably are roughly a tenth of the size of or smaller than a human cell and in fact if you look inside a human cell you can see evidence of evolution because there are these structures called mitochondria and the mitochondria are the cellular powerhouses, they are part of your metabolism and the mitochondria are the same size as a bacterium and what scientists think because they look so similar is that way back in early evolution a bacterium got inside an early cell and the two developed this partnership called the symbiosis. Um, theory and the bacterium produced lots of energy and the cell gave the bacterium protection and things it needed and the consequence was the two lived happily side by side but we're still living happily side by side with bacteria we need them and if we don't have them in our guts then we're less healthy for the simple reason that if you rear animals and they're not allowed to have bacteria in their guts they don't do very well does this mean that if you take antibiotics it's not very good can be bad for you it can do, and that's a very good point, Dave, that when you take antibiotics that are what are called broad-spectrum antibiotics, these, ba these go through you like domestos, and they kill all the good bacteria, and anything that's left behind that's not vulnerable to the effect of the antibiotic can, in fact, then overgrow, and yeasts and other fungi infections can do that because antibiotics won't kill those, but they will kill the bacteria. And also things like Clostridium difficile, C. diff, which is antibiotic-associated diarrhoea and, and, and kills people in hospital. If people are put on big doses of antibiotics, then all the friendly bacteria get wiped out and these other ones overgrow and can be a major problem. That's quite a worry, really. Well, as Chris said, we've been in South Africa for the last week, and South Africa is a country of contrast, and Johannesburg no less so. It's easy to see that all the new cars and the expensive houses, the high-rise offices, but just ten minutes south of the centre lies the township of Soweto, where many people will live in a shack, little more than a simple metal shed. 
To get an idea of what life is really like for the poor in Johannesburg, we spoke to one of the residents there. My name is Zareda Shangwe and we are at Mtsaredi. We live in a shack. We don't have electricity or water running through the yard. We have to go, maybe we pass five houses to get water. And we use gas stoves to cook. And we light with candles in the house, we use a car battery for television and radio. How many people live here? Five, six with my son. And, and who are those four people that you live with, apart my from your son? My sisters. One is older and the three are younger than me. So what do you do for money? I mean, you're not able to go to work, you're looking after your son, so how do you live? We sell vegetables. My, sister, my older sister sells vegetables. And are they vegetables you buy from someone else, or do you grow them? We grow them down the road, in the other side. So tell us a bit about life for you here. What's it like to actually live here? Because... This is pretty basic as a, as a means of accommodation. Yes. It's, when we live here, people judge us for living here. When people pass the street, they look at us in a different way. They don't think of us as people. They just think of people living in a shack. So it's not nice. You've got a television here. Yes. You, you haven't got any electricity, though, so how do you run your television? We use a car battery. How long does that last? It lasts about six or seven days. And so television radio must be quite important for you to get information. Yes, it is important. It is important for us. But if you could change things here, I mean, what would be the most immediate thing that would, would make life better? Electricity. We don't mind not having houses, but we just want electricity and running water in the yards. It's pretty drafty in here. There's holes in the roof. Yes. Um, is it warm? What's when it's hot outside, the house becomes very, very hot. When it's cold, it becomes cold. When it rains, it leaks. What do you think is the prospects for your son? How, how will you try and make sure things go well for him? I don't know. If I, I could find a job, I can make sure that things go well for him if I could find a job. Have you any plans of how you might make that happen? Yes, I do. I, I do send CVs. I go, sometimes they call me for interviews, but sometimes I don't get a job. I never, uh, since I went for interviews, I, never, I didn't get a job. So I'm still sending, inter I'm sending CVs and looking for a job. And were, were you born here? No, we were born in Guazunata. My parents came here looking for jobs. And they brought you with them? Yes. Do you wish in some respects they hadn't brought you here? No, we don't, because... In Gazun Natal, it's worse than here. The situation is worse than the one we face here. And what do you think will be the situation in five years' time for you and the your family? The government promises to change things, so we hope it would have things would have changed by then. Now, although five people and a baby living together in a corrugated metal shack not much bigger than my garage with no electricity and no running water may sound very extreme to us... In many places, the quality of life is a lot worse. And also with us in Soweto was Dira Nonifadi. He's a television journalist based in Nigeria. So I asked him how the conditions we experienced compared with other parts of Africa. To be honest with you, I will not describe these as very bad. I'm not measuring just by Nigeria, but my fairly extensive knowledge of other African countries. And, and, because if you look at it, they don't have electricity in their homes but there is still a situation where there is some illumination in the night. Street lights and so on. Street lights. 
and there is community water supply there for them 24 hours a day and you even have provisions for toilets by African standards this is not how a squatter settlement is treated you're saying these people are fortunate in a way yes it's hard to imagine worse though well, uh, you go to villages or even see who constitutes the, the urban poor in many African cities. It's, it's, it's far worse. It's far worse in the sense that you find much more number of people living in the same, in the same rooms without running water, without good toilets, and much the same way without electricity. And, it's not good, but it's not the worst that can happen on this continent. How do you see places like this changing in the next five years? Do you, do you think if we come back in five years' time, we'll still be standing here looking upon uh, the same sort of scene, a worse scene, or will things have got markedly better? This is easy to change in the sense that they already have spaces well cut out for them. In many African cities, people like them are just mere squatters to be flushed out. And... I think the most important thing is for them to have electricity and for a way to be worked out for them to have some more concrete structure. I mean, if that happens, life, it's, uh, I, I think their fortune is easy to turn around. Uh, theirs is better than people who still live in mud huts, you know, with thatched roofs and, and, and things like that. And there is no prospect of even getting electricity to them. And there is no water pipe anywhere close by. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's easy to change their, their lot. It's a bizarre environment, though, because we drove in the car for 10 minutes out of five-star hotels, beautiful radio studios in the middle of Johannesburg, and then we're here, and it couldn't be more different. It's what some analysts have been called the five-minute factor. Most cities, be it in Nigeria, be it in Ghana, be it wherever, most cities, you just need to drive five minutes out of those cities and you see this the flip side of civilization it's that bad and the trappings of cities were still actually there because when we were in that shack chris pointed out that she had a better dvd player than chris has got at home but that was uh, during orofade talking to chris uh, in soweto so naked scientists with chris ben and dave we're talking about science in south africa this week but we're also talking science in general in a second tony in chelmsford's got a question for us about electric toothbrushes if you've got a question email us it's chris at the naked scientist.com the naked scientists for more information get online at nakedscientists.com. it's the naked scientist hello tony hi how are you doing chris very well thank you I've got a really strange one here. I mean, I know a bit about electrics and how you conduct it. I've recently bought an um, uh, electric toothbrush, and it ha- comes with a base on the bottom that you um, put the charger base that has a protrusion, but a plastic protu- protrusion, and then the bottom of the toothbrush has a hole in it, and you sit one on top of the other, and it charges but there's no metal contacts. It's plastic to plastic. How can that work? It does sound very strange, doesn't it? Um, They don't want to use actual contacts because in a wet environment in a um, bathroom, the contacts will get dirty, they'll rust, they won't last very long. So what they do is something else, which is kind of cunning. Inside that little protuberance, there's a coil of wire. 
and then that connects to the mains. Um, and so basically you've got a current running backwards and forwards through that wire. That produces a magnetic field um, with electromagnets, which is a magnetic field that changes going one way and then the other. Then inside the um, toothbrush, there's another coil going outside the protuberance, again under plastic, um, going round and round and round, and then connecting into the toothbrush itself. And that, uh, if, it, that, if you had a magnetic field going through near a conductor, that will induce a current in that conductor. And it's actually how a, a transformer works. Um, and so the, the current inside the first coil makes a magnetic field, which changes, and that changing magnetic field makes current flow inside the second coil without having to touch it, and that charges the toothbrush itself. And that's because the magnetism can pass through the plastic, even though electricity can't. Yeah. How's that, how how's that for an answer, that? Tony? That's brilliant, but I mean, that is amazingly clever. Well, I'm glad that you enjoyed that answer, Tony. It's been great having you on The Naked Scientist. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Tony in Chelmsford. If you've got a question, you can email us. It's chris at nakedscientist.com. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Now, the conditions we saw in Soweto were a breeding ground for infectious diseases, and things like HIV and TB are no exception. Now, this week, the United Nations reduced its estimates for how many people are actually infected and affected by HIV and AIDS. But they also announced that South Africa is officially the country with the world's highest prevalence, in other words, number of cases of that disease, anywhere. But there is one benefit to being the country with the most HIV and AIDS and also being relatively connected to the first world, and that is that the scientists and doctors working there have some of the best statistics on the disease that the world has to offer. And I met up with some of those scientists working to try and understand this condition and also try and break the back of this epidemic. My name is Helen Rees. I'm the Executive Director of the Reproductive Health and HIV Research Unit at the University of Witwatersrand, based in Johannesburg. The, the scale of the HIV epidemic is something that hasn't been known in the world ever before. We can say that 5 million people out of the 41 million people in South Africa are infected. What that really means is that one in eight of every adults in this country are infected by HIV. It means that when we see pregnant women in the clinics, between one in three and up to one in two of the women we see are infected with HIV with a very high risk that they're going to transmit the virus to their infant. In young girls aged between 15 and 24, about one in four of those young women are infected with HIV. If this were the statistics that we saw in a developed country, a state of emergency would be declared. If you look at who those people are, is there any particular group or subset in the population who are affected, or is this everybody? HIV can affect everybody, and if you look in South Africa, indeed it affects all race groups, it affects rich and poor. However, if you look at the way that the epidemic is now spreading, it is disproportionately affecting black African South Africans, and uh, we do think that it's affecting young people much more than older people. Do you have any ideas as to why it's affecting the people that it's affecting? Is it, is it an educational thing, or is there something else going on? I think there's a lot of something else going on. There's a whole mixture of, of issues here. There is the issue of poverty that, as a background, affects all infectious diseases. Uh, there's, a, there's a historical issue of apartheid that created the migrant labor system that's both destroyed the social structure of families, but has also pulled men from their families and made them single male individuals living in urban settings where they take often second partners. 
But there are other things as well. There are issues about other sexually transmitted infections and, and possibly just the sort of virus that we've got and possibly the receptivity of the population. So it could be right down to basic science as an influencing factor as well in why we have such a bad epidemic. If indeed there is some sort of scientific and, and basic biological um, explanation to this, then, then we need to understand that if we're going to stand a chance to make a vaccine. Thank you, Helen. Now, Francois Fenter, you work with Helen. What have we learned so far about how people actually pass this on and when they're most infectious and when, therefore, most of the transmissions occur? I think what we have realized that it's only in the first few months that people are hyperinfectious. There's still an infection rate after that, but the scale of the infectiousness is so much greater during those first few months that it's starting to explain some of the frustration as to why large-scale prevention programs in our country in particular, but throughout Southern Africa, have not had the impact that we've hoped they would. Um, condom provision, for instance, in this country is actually very, very good. Um, education processes have been, you know, in terms of if you measure it against people's understandings of HIVs and their dispelling of myths, people know what's going on. Um, they, they understand about HIV. It hasn't changed the dynamics of the epidemic on the face of it. So why are they still getting it, then, if they know all that? I think that what we haven't understood is when transmission actually occurs, and it seems to be very concentrated in the first few months immediately after infection. And if you do not intervene in those first few months, you actually lose the overall public health benefit of, of dealing with, uh, with transmission. So what you're saying is if everyone stopped having sex for three months which is when you're most infectious when you first catch it, then potentially you could just stop it in its tracks because people's infectivity falls so much after that period. Uh, that's the theory. Is in fact, we could probably break the back of the entire epidemic if we could just alter sexual behaviours for a very brief period of time. What about drugs? Because that's the thing at the moment. It's the mainstay of how we're trying to deal with HIV. There's no vaccine, so we've got to treat people that have got it rather than trying to prevent people getting it in the first place because that's, as we've shown part of the argument, but it's not the whole solution. So how do the drugs work, and have you got access to them here in South Africa? The, the drugs are very, very effective. They, they essentially switch off the manufacture of the virus and allow for the body's immune system to regenerate. They are available in South Africa and have been freely, relatively freely for the last three, three and a half years. Within the rest of Southern Africa, it varies from country to country, and even within our own country from region to region, where in some rural areas people battle to get access to these drugs, while in urban areas, access is relatively free and available. So we've heard about the drugs, we've heard about other behavioural education to try and cut this down, but Jocelyn Moyes, you're working on another way to, to try and deal with this problem. So an area that we're doing quite a lot of work in is vaginal microbicides. The two present products that are about to come to the end of clinical trials block HIV from attaching to the body cells. They're a very large molecule which will sit on the HIV receptor of the cell and so form almost like put a key into the keyhole and so that when HIV comes along, it can't get through the keyhole into the body cells. The present microbicides and testing come in a gel formulation which is applied vaginally to prevent HIV either attaching to the cells or replicating. Just for women, or can men get some benefit from this? Well, I mean, it's topically applied and controlled by a woman, but there is a chance that there will be protection for the male partner as well. Have you any feel for how effective this is? Because, you know, it sounds like a lot to put your faith in, to be honest. How do you know that you're going to get complete coverage, or how do you know that you're going to get enough concentration to, to do away with the virus? Um, we've got um, two candidates in phase three testing, which is the efficacy testing. So does it work or doesn't it work? We'll have one set of results early in next year and the other results probably early in 2010. So then I think we will really have some sort of proof of concept. Can it work or can't it work? So at the moment, our basis is that these compounds are active against HIV in the lab. 
They've been active at preventing HIV infection in animal models, and they are safe to use in humans. So that's our assumption to this point. And our efficacy in humans will be proved early next year and then again in 2010. And just returning to you briefly, Helen, uh, a lot of people are probably thinking, why should the rest of the world really worry about what's happening in one other country? I mean, there's lots of other problems around the world. Why should HIV in South Africa be such a big international issue? Well, you know, it's not just HIV in South Africa. HIV globally is not going away. In fact, in many countries, it's re-emerging as a problem. The other thing that we know is that with a disease that's as devastating as this, that's seeing life expectancy drop by 10-year aliquots, uh, almost year on year, that's going to have a profound impact ultimately on the social fabric in many African countries and in other countries in the Far East that are affected. You must then think what that will do to economies of those countries, what that will do to political stability. And once again, Again, we are a global family, and if we have instability and poverty and growing problems in one part of the world, inevitably they will relate to what happens in other parts of the world. That's one argument. The other basic argument is the argument that I hope we never lose, lose touch of is that we are one common human family, and we cannot ever look at the level of suffering that we're seeing as a result of this epidemic in this part of the world and just turn our back on it because it's not directly affecting us. Pretty scary, aren't they, those statistics? One person in two who's pregnant turning up at antenatal clinics and they're HIV positive. South Africa, uh, the country with the, as the UN puts it, the worst prevalence of HIV anywhere in the world at the moment. That was Helen Rees and uh, Francois Ventner and Jocelyn Moyes. They're at the University of Vortisrand in Johannesburg and they're working to try and break the back of this HIV epidemic that's currently gripping South Africa. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and Ben. And this week we're looking at some of the science that we discovered during our week in Johannesburg last week where we went to attend South Africa's first example of a communication of science conference where, in fact, The Naked Scientists were a headline act. We ended up on national and national radio and television pretty much every day last week um, because people there are really eager to try and get hold of more science and it's just something that they're not doing. We don't know how lucky, I guess, we are here in the UK to have the amount of amazing communication and journalism that just goes on. So it was very eye-opening for all of us concerned. Anyway, if you have any science questions for us, then you can send them in. Email us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, one of the fantastic opportunities we had in South Africa was to visit the collection of fossils at Witwatersrand University. Now, they house a collection of about 30% of the fossils found in Africa that tell us about how we evolved from ape-like creatures into modern humans. Professor Lee Berger took us through some of the highlights of the collection, piecing together three million years of evolution in the process. But one of the most interesting things that the fossil record reveals was that we went through a period of extreme gigantism, and these were people routinely over seven foot tall. These were huge. And this was before we turned into the modern humans of today. And that's huge even by our standards, not just by Ben's. <laughs> You've probably heard the myth that ancient humans were tiny, and some of them were tiny. But as we moved during this uh, period of about half a million years down to about 300,000 years ago in Africa, we move into this sort of mystery period where there's just a tiny, tiny handful of fossils. But the ones we find from that are incredibly intriguing. By this time, you're going to begin seeing the origin of Neanderthals in Europe. Inside of Africa, they go through one of the most incredible things that that we've only just begun to realize. That is, they go through a period of giantism. What I'm pulling out of this bag may shock you. Whoa. (laughs) 
what we're looking at is the most enormous femur, so the, the bit that forms your hip joint. Which that, is, that, that's huge. That, I mean, as, as a doctor, I know how big they normally are. That's huge. That is beyond huge. That's so big we can't even calculate how big this individual was. You would need sort of an NBA basketball player to, to get someone in the height that this probably would have been, something like over seven feet tall. You don't think this person's just a, an abnormality? No, because we found a lot of them. Everywhere we find them, we find them enormous. These are what we call often archaic homo sapiens. Some people refer to them as homo heidelbergensis, where you find them. But these individuals are extraordinary. They truly are giants. Does it coincide with a, a time when there was enormous amounts of resources, lots of food, which meant they could afford a huge body size like that? Actually, it might have been just the opposite. That is, it was a period where there were large amounts of, of, of grasslands evolving and that there were lots of giants adapting to that grasslands in Africa. Giant buffalo with, with horns three meters across, if you can imagine that. And these individuals in that very rugged environment, that tough environment, seemingly were utilizing their body size to enforce themselves in, into what was a very, very dry and tough period. So when would he have been around? This particular individual existed probably about 350,000 to 400,000 years ago. And how long did people with this giant stature exist for before they started to shrink again? We have no idea, but what we do know is the next time we start getting a good window in, that is 150 to 100,000 years ago, we are here. People of our stature, our body size. So this experiment was relatively, in at least our terms, short-lived, a couple of hundred thousand years. So that was all happening about 300,000 years ago. But what about if we wind the clock back now to almost the very beginning, to the earliest human ancestors who walked around on two legs? These were the Australopithecines, and they emerged about three million years ago. The first ever example was unearthed by the famous paleoanthropologist Raymond Dart. In the early 1920s, he was working with his students in the Tung Limestone Works, which is in the Hearts Valley in Bekwanaland, South Africa. And there, he discovered what turned out to be one of the most important fossils of all time. This little brown box I'm opening up is the actual box that Raymond Dart had built back in 1925 to hold arguably the most important single human ancestor fossil on the planet. And you're about to join a really exclusive club of people who've actually seen and touched it. This is the one that defines what it is to be an early African ape man. Um, so how old is this? Is, this is three million years old. Well, this is about two and a half million years old. We've actually largely dated it by comparing it to other fossils that have been found since. It is an awe-inspiring fossil, but it's remarkably still the only fossil that was ever found at the Tong site. The only one it just happened to be this little child, which is the type specimen, the first fossil of an early human ever found in Africa. This started the entire science. In fact, you could even argue things like genetics and the study of our own origins via that came out of this fossil. Discovered at the Tong Lime Quarry, it was sent in a box full of baboons to Raymond Dart, and if it had arrived on almost anyone else's desk at that particular time, they might not have recognized it, because what he pulled out of that box, first thing he saw... I pull out this little plastic bag, is that remarkable little thing. Half an endocast of a brain of a little child. And immediately, Raymond Dart recognized that he wasn't holding a baboon brain in his hand. It wasn't the brain of even a chimpanzee. It was far too big. He was holding something that no one had ever seen before. What he probably would have used the term 
a missing link. It's totally extraordinary. How does something so soft and blamongy as brain actually get preserved? Well, because it doesn't. That's not actually the brain. What that is is a cast of the interior of the skull. Every time your heart beats as your head is forming in a child, it beats an impression of the surface of your brain onto, effectively, the inside of your skull. When a skull ends up in these remarkable fossilization situations, there's a perfect impression, a perfect image of your brain on the inside of that skull. When it fills with sediments and fine sediments, we then have a perfect cast of the brain. You can literally, looking at that from the side, see the three major parts of the brain. I can see what's going to be the cerebellum, the hindbrain at the back. There's the temporal lobe, which in us is adjacent to our ear. And then the, the frontal lobes, where you know I do thinking and planning. I don't know whether this would have done much planning and thinking, but it, that's an incredible fossil. That is, it is one of the most remarkable fossils in and of itself uh, that you'll ever see, even down to look at the, the veins on the surface. The blood supply to the brain is actually preserved on the surface of that. And when Raymond Dart turned this little thing over, just like I'm doing right now, and looked down, he saw that was not a rearward-facing point of attachment between this skull and the spinal cord. It was vertically positioned. And that says it's not ape-like, that's homo. I walk on two legs. That's what it spoke to him as clearly as if it were written on the fossil itself. And if that had been all he'd found, it would have been fantastic. But it wasn't all he found. Because inside of another block he saw this little mushroom-shaped attachment. And in it, he saw the back of a mushroom-shaped... Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, my God. As it, I, I just got a glimpse of what's going to come out of this bag. He took his wife's knitting needles, and he started chipping away at it. And on December the 21st, 1924, that rock broke away, and he saw that. That... It's a face. I'm looking at a face. It's phenomenal. You're looking at maybe the most famous face in all of paleontology. The it's face also of perfect. Bone. It's absolutely perfect because it doesn't have just the top. It has the bottom. You have a, a jaw and a face to go with it. It's still quite monkey-like, though, isn't it? A little bit. It, it doesn't have quite the prognathism that a young monkey would have, oh. and what it certainly doesn't have is a big canine. So we're going back to, to something that, that's transitional. It's a bit of the way between us and them. It's, it's, it's our link. This little child met a tragic, tragic end at about three and a half years of age. And now I'll do something for you. I'll put it all together. The whole Tong child reunited after being two and a half million years in the ground. I think that probably is the most awe-inspiring experience, or one of them, I've ever had. It should be, because it's about us. It's our experience. You want to touch it? Go on, then. <laughs> so if, if I touch this, how many other people probably will have had the opportunity, apart from obviously the great Raymond Dart himself, to, to have done that? No more than a few hundred scientists and a few dozen people who aren't scientists. That is absolutely incredible. To say I'm blown away would be an understatement, actually. That's good. It's when I saw the face staring out at me through that plastic bag. It's almost moving you to tears, in mm. fact. It's just so incredible and delicate and, and perfect. Yep. And two and a half million years old, and it's our story.
The emotions were running quite high in that room, and it was such an honour to see that. But if you're wondering what happened to that child, it was actually snatched away and killed by an eagle. The fossilised bones of the skull have preserved the scratches from the bird's talons. They compared it to baboons, and they can see that that's what it was. And that was Professor Lieberger showing us some of the most important human ancestor fossils ever found. We had to pick just a couple of highlights for you this week, but we will be releasing an enhanced podcast soon, complete with pictures and the whole three million year history. And that'll be on our website, which is nakedscientist.com. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. It's the Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and Ben. It's our South Africa Science Special this week. That was an amazing story. In a second, we're returning to to, uh, Question of the Week and also still to come is Kitchen Science with Ben throwing his voice 50 metres. And this week's Question of the Week is all about why sunglasses make you see funny patterns in metal and also patches in glass you didn't think were there. And I got an email from Ryan McNally who says something on the related theme, so I thought I'd ask you this first day before we go to Question of the Week. And Ryan says, While wearing sunglasses, I've noticed that I can no longer see the image on the face of my digital watch. Why? He's probably wearing what are called polarised sunglasses. Now, what they do is they only let one polarisation of light through. Now, light is a wave, you've probably heard that. Um, light has, a, it's a bit like a wave on a piece of string. So if I had a, a piece of string between me and you, Chris, over there, I can produce, I can make waves in it by wobbling up and down. That would make waves going vertically. And in light, that would be called a vertically polarised light. Or I can make it waves by wobbling them horizontally, and that would be called horizontally polarised so light. So does light come in both flavours, then? Light can come in both flavours or any other polarisation in between any angle you like. And in fact, light coming from a normal light bulb or a fluorescent tube or the sun has all of them mixed together so it's every possible polarization so it's almost like a, if you if you looked at it you'd see a sort of tube because it was lots of waves all at tiny amounts of angles to each other and you'd see almost a tube of light wave coming uh, towards well it would just everything would be wobbling in every possible direction basically um then okay so then you get things called polaroids which your sunglasses are these will only let one polarization through so if you have them horizontally it will only let horizontal through or vertically only let vertical through if you've got two of them if they're both horizontal light can get through it because horizontal can get through the first one and get through the second one if you have a rotate the second one to vertical nothing can get through because the first one stops horizontal the second one stops the vertical and it looks black and it looks black now an lcd uses this because it has two polarizers on it or possibly uh, it has polarizers on it so light comes through from underneath it gets polarized um so only the vertical is going through. Then you have something called LCD, which can twist the polarisation of light by 90 degrees to the second one, so light can get through normally. But if you then apply an electric field to it, then that can stop it, stop the LCD twisting the polarisation, so no light, no light can go through, so it'll go black. So that, this means the light coming out of the LCD is polarised, there's only one polarisation, so if your sunglasses are orientated in the right way, it can block it and it'll go black. Cool. Right, well, let's find out what happens when you look at metal and windows then. It's very true. We have Diana coming up now with this week's Question of the Week. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week on The Naked Scientists, where I'm going to be donning my sunnies out of season. Hi, I'm Lauren calling from Australia and I wanted to ask, how come when you wear polarised lenses can you see strange patterns of light in windows and shiny rainbows in metal? So what's happening to the light? Here's our expert to explain. Hello, John Parker here, uh, Department of Engineering Materials at Sheffield University, with an interest in glass in all its forms, and particularly glass colour. 
the question that we've been asked concerns why you see strange patterns on glass when you look at it with polarised light. Uh, and the answer to that really comes in the fact that the glasses that are being looked at have been toughened by thermal quenching, by cooling very rapidly. And the consequence of doing that is that you get stresses in the glass which have a different orientation according to where the cooling nozzles were in the original system used for quenching. So some parts of the glass, the stresses are running up and down, some parts running across and so on. Now, the light, as it travels through the glass, interacts with those stresses differently. And in effect, you end up with two rays traveling through the glass with different polarization sensors traveling at slightly different velocities when they emerge they recombine and they're a bit out of step and what your eye is seeing is a color associated with just how out of step they were so that's the explanation for the effects that you see with toughened glass with metals uh, the answer's almost certainly to do with the fact that when you get a reflection from a metal surface you get some polarization and you may possibly have an oxide layer a thin oxide layer which is as a result of tarnishing things and all of these effects influence polarized light as it comes through and can give rise to colors there you have it. Sunglasses act as directional filters, so when you get light reflecting off a surface in waves that are out of step, you can see it because they're singled out from all the other light waves. Manufacturers of plate glass will use this polarised lens phenomenon to check if their products are smooth and uniform. I expect you'd need a good pair of sunglasses if you plan to jump from outer space, so next week I'll be chatting to a record-holding parachutist to answer this question. Hello, my name's Paul Kingston, calling from the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. I had a question regarding astronauts. I was wondering whether it would be possible for them if they were stuck in space to project themselves towards Earth and re-enter the atmosphere in only a spacesuit. Could their spacesuits handle re-entry temperatures and how long could this trip possibly take? And following that, there'll be another great leap. Hi, I'm Jeff from the US and I was once told that if a high-tension line, a 23 kV power line, fell across my car, it isn't safe to stay inside because the tires aren't enough to insulate it and the tires and vehicle would catch fire. I was told that I had to open the car door and jump out, keeping my feet together, and then hop away from the car, still with my feet right together, because the voltage gradient present in the earth would be enough to shock me if I, my feet touched the ground at separate distances. I've often wondered since if this was really true. What's the best thing to do if a 23 kilovolt power line falls on your car, and how can you jump from outer space to the earth? If you have any more questions or some answers, do have a look at our forum online or send an email to questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. That's it for this week's Question of the Week. Until next time. Thank you, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll. And just to point out, we also had a very, very good answer from TechMind on our forum at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's where the Question of the Week gets published. And you can always contribute either new questions or new answers if you have any. Now, while we were in Johannesburg, we couldn't resist but to do a bit of kitchen science. And where better than the Saibono Discovery Centre, a world-class science centre based in a disused power station? They've got a huge range of really good experiments to help South African schoolchildren and adults alike engage with science and understand how it affects their lives. Chris and I spent hours playing with all the toys. I caught up with the CEO of Saibono, David Kramer, to explore the science of sound and show that when aided by a large metal dish, being on opposite sides of a huge room is no obstacle 
to having a conversation. For Kitchen Science this week, I've come to the Cybono Science Centre in Johannesburg in South Africa. And to show me around, I've got David Kramer, who is not actually with me right now, because I'm standing in front of a two-metre satellite dish, which has a big yellow ring in the front, and 50 metres away on the other side of the room, David Kramer is also there with a different satellite dish. So, David, can you hear me over there? I can hear you perfectly well, Ben. How is it that we can hear each other over this 50-metre expansion in a really big room? Well, we're standing in front of two huge saucer-shaped parabolic dishes, and these parabolic dishes have this little yellow focus point in front of them. These dishes are acting as amplifiers. So all the sound that's uh, coming out of your mouth is going through this vast expanse and bouncing off these parabolic dishes into this one little focal point, and so these dishes are acting as an amplifier. Well, fantastic. And can you hear me as well as I can hear you? I can hear you perfectly well, yes. So do you have any other experiments to tell us things about sound? We've got a few more exhibits that I think will be of interest to anyone who wants to hear about sound, so why don't you come over the centre and we'll play with some of those toys. I've come over to join David by his satellite dish now, but one of the things I noticed on the way is what looks like a church organ but made out of transparent plastic tubes. What is this for? Well, we call it the pipes of pan. What it does is pass the same amount of noise and air through these pipes of various lengths, and it filters out different frequencies, so what you get is an organ effect. And if you put your ear to the bottom of each of these tubes, you'll hear a different frequency of what sounds like wind coming through. Okay, well, if I put my ear to the longest one, I see what you mean. It sounds like it sounds like the noise of an aeroplane passing over us. So if I just try and put the microphone in here and see what we can hear. So that was the longest pipe you have, but why does the length of the pipe affect the sound? Well, the length of the pipe affects the sound because it's filtering out certain frequencies. So what we get with the longest is the lowest pitch because we get the longer wavelength coming through, which allows us to hear those much more easily. Whereas if you listen to the other end, the short pipe um, helps, to frequ- helps to filter out more of the longer wavelength. It keeps the shorter wavelengths, and so you hear a higher pitch. OK, well, once again, I'll try and record the higher pitch from the shortest one definitely hear that it's different and now let's see if I can run up the whole scale so does this actually create any sound or does it just work on the sound that's already here it's working on ambient sound it's using the sound that's already here it's not creating any any sound at all it's just filtering the sound that's here and obviously you have this wonderful pipes of pan set up but is there any way that people could do this at home and hear the same effect All you need is some kind of tube, and you need a series of tubes of differing lengths. Same thing will happen. So you could use, say, the cardboard tube from a toilet roll and compare that to a kitchen roll tube? Absolutely. All sorts of different rolls in the home. Why not? Fantastic. Well, as you said, it's working on ambient noise, and there is a lot of ambient noise going on. There's a lot of building work going on. What have you got planned? Well, we're building a phase two building. Uh, uh, We're an educational institution, not just a science centre. We're putting in new classrooms, a few laboratories, a computer centre or two, anything that's going to help us to make a contribution to the quality of schooling in the city. Well, you have a wonderful science centre here, and I wish it all the best for the future. Thanks. I'm glad you could join us. Well, that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, but we'll be back with more as usual next week. Thanks, Ben. And if you want to try out that pipes of pan experiment at home, all you need is a um, tube out of the centre of a kitchen roll and one out of a toilet roll, and then hold them to your ears and you should be able to hear the different effects. Or if you can't even wait for that, just get a piece of card or a magazine, roll it up one way, listen to it, roll it up the other way, and listen to it and you should hear the two different sounds. So in other words, an oblong piece of card or or magazine, because then you get a long tube or a short tube, respectively. That's exactly right. (laughs) 
Well, that's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be finding out all about the nervous system. How does music affect your brain and also Alzheimer's disease? And what causes it? One possible cause is herpes simplex virus, the cold sore virus. So there's a question, should we be putting all old people on anti-herpes drugs to try and cut down their risk of dementia? And in Kitchen Science next week, we're going to find out how you can trick your brain and trick your senses using a bit of carpet, a smooth surface and a piece of paper. And you can find out more of our experiments by going to thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science thanks Ben so do join us next time if you have a chance send your questions on that subject to me now chris at thenakedscientist.com and thank you very much to our wonderful production team who are Diana O'Carroll Mira Synthalingham and also the guys this evening who helped to bring the show to you Ben Valsler and Dave Ansel have a great week see you next time goodbye The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust the EPSRC and UK Fast for more information Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.